And our text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I want to begin at 16 instead of 19, as is printed in the bulletin. We're sort of jumping in the middle of a discussion Jesus is having with a woman at a well. And he has just offered her salvation and grace and life, living water. And here's the discussion that ensues. John 4, 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. We have been looking at this Samaritan woman for several months now. And I want to ask you this question. Can you identify with her? Is there any way you sense you have a link or a commonality to this woman? Maybe this. Are there things in your life you want to hide from other people? Things you're ashamed for people to know? How many of you this week went up to your spouse, your brother, your sister, friend, and said, please, please conduct an unbridled scrutiny of my soul? Anybody do that? Do I have a volunteer? Someone comes up right now, stand up here, and we're just going to probe and probe and probe until we find 10 wretched things about you. Any volunteers? Of course not. This is the Samaritan woman. It's her world. She's alone. She's hiding. She's in shame, presumably because of her sexual immorality. A string of broken relationships. Jesus told her, the one you now have is not your husband. How do we know she's hiding and in shame? The text tells us that it's high noon. Women in her culture did not come to draw water at noon. It was too hot. She's alone. Women in her culture came in groups to get water together, to get help with the pots. So she's there by herself against all domestic conventions trying to stay out of the eye of public scrutiny. And what she has planned as an escape 
has led her into the precious, loving arms of the only man who could set her free. What grace. Free from what prison? Shame. Into what freedom? Worship. The glory of worship. So I'm going to ask two questions of the text this morning. Number one, why does this dialogue turn to a discussion about worship? It starts with drinking water and everlasting life and these kinds of things. Once the confusion evaporates about water, the table is set, beloved, for personal renewal. She needs a spiritual awakening. Jesus is there to offer her, and he's here today to offer you everlasting life, but on the condition that you are honest about your sin. Go call your husband. Jesus says, bring your sin to me. How gracious. Watch me deal with your brokenness, your shame your sin, your rotten heart. Do you see what this text tells you? You are never so bad as to be beyond the reach of God's grace, nor are you ever so good as to be beyond the need of God's grace. Let me say that again. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. You are never so good as to be beyond the need of the grace of Jesus. Nor are you ever so bad as to be beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus. Jesus is reaching into her life, and he does so with divine knowledge. He'd never met her before, but he says, you've had five husbands, and the man you're sleeping with now is not your husband. Translated, dear woman, your heart is restless. You are looking for love, life, for significance, for security in all the wrong places. You are quenching your thirst for God with things that will never satisfy you. And just like your physical thirst for the water of this well, so you will thirst again psychologically and spiritually as long as something else fills your soul except God. If it's not this man, it'll be another. If it's not this amount of money, it'll be more. If it's not this amount of fame, success, popularity, comfort, sensual pleasure, it will always be just a little more. You will thirst until you find the only thing you were ultimately made for, God himself. Do you know the name Ted Turner? The uh, billionaire media mogul Ted Turner? He said a number of years ago, he's the guy that said Christians are stupid incidentally, but that's not the quote I'm using this morning. He said, life's a bag. You spend all your life dumping all these things into it in response to the question, what's it like to be so wealthy? Life's a bag. You spend all your life pouring all these things into it, and then you finally stop and look into it, and it's empty. Ted Turner, billionaire. It's empty. What would you call that? I would call that a severe mercy. To know that to have everything this world could offer you and still be empty is pointing you to the only thing you were ultimately made for, the living God himself. So the woman responds with 
a reasonable response. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. We've been calling that all semester the understatement of the year. Obviously, she knows that only a man with divine knowledge could know these sort of details about her life, having never met her. He's seeing something only God knows. And so she immediately begins to talk about worship. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the, where, is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus is confronting her with her idolatry, and she starts immediately talking about worship. And just for the record, are her facts correct? Are her facts correct? It is correct. This well is literally in the shadow of Mount Gerizim, and it is the place 300 years earlier than this time. The Samaritans had built a temple, but not without sanction from God. And the Jews have maintained all along that the only right place to worship God, the place God has chosen, is in fact in Jerusalem. She had the right facts. Dory read earlier from Deuteronomy 12, you shall seek the place the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation. If you have been blessed enough in our culture to have enough money to buy a home where you want it, you get it. God puts his home where he wants it. But the fact that she has the right facts does not guarantee she has the right interpretation of the facts. <laughs> she doesn't know what it means. But more importantly, why, why does she launch into a discussion about worship? Consciously, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. There's a man in her presence who, know, who, who, who knows only what God can know. So he's a prophet. Prophets have direct communication from God. So consciously, okay, that's fine. Let's talk. So prophets are in, the, are in the religion business. Let's talk about religion. It's like me. I did this wedding a couple years ago, and I heard ahead of time that the uncle of the bride was an NFL referee. Guess what I did during the whole reception? I cornered him and I peppered him with questions. What is it like to be on the field of an NFL game? For an hour we talked, question, question. I turn around, all oh, the food was gone from the buffet line. It's okay. An NFL ref was there. He's in the refing business. I asked him all the questions I could. Okay, so consciously, I get that. Really, the food was gone, but you gotta make trade-offs subconsciously, it's easier to talk theology than to deal with your junk. It's easier to hide all behind all your Bible knowledge than to deal with the sin that Bible knowledge is supposed to expose. We can be certain she didn't come to the well thinking, I want to talk about my sin with God. Look, we naturally hide behind our accomplishments. The more accomplished you are in this life, the easier it is to not deal with the wretched rebellion of your own heart. So if you're accomplished and that is something that you do, glory to God. Thank him for his grace. So Jesus goes with the flow. You want to discuss places of religion perhaps for all the wrong reasons? I want to talk about it for the right reasons. Verse 23. 
An hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus in this grace focuses on true worshipers. By definition, what does that mean there are in this world? There are true worshipers and there must also be, by Jesus making the contrast, what? False worshipers. That's incredibly important for you to know lest you end up like this woman, emblematic of people who are worshiping the wrong God and their lives are in the tank because of it and eternity's at stake. So second question, what makes worship true? Answer, God accepts it, which of course just backs up the question one more, which is what kind of worship does God accept? So this is what Jesus teaches us. He shows there are two principles of acceptable worship. A, it is not what you do per se, but who you know. Notice that Jesus judges her false worship. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. The point is not to condemn her but to bring her into the place of adoring the true deserving object of worship. For all we know, she's sincere. But Jesus says that is not acceptable because the Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except the Pentateuch, the first five books. She, Jesus is saying you don't know God. So it's not surprising, therefore, beloved, that the Bible condemns many forms of false worship, bowing to the wrong God, crass self-worship, subtle self-worship. I love this line in John 12, always convicts me. They love the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. That's a subtle form of self-worship. And vain worship. So the most religious people on the face of the earth at the time of Jesus' life are the Pharisees. Here's what Jesus said about them. He said in Matthew 15, 8, in vain do you worship me. So if I'm listening to Jesus say that, are my antennas going to go up? You better believe it. Whoa! I'm worshiping in vain? What about it is in vain? These people honor me with their lips, all the right forms, but their hearts are far from me. In my Proverbs class, what question did I teach you, class, to ask of a verse like that? Could that be me? All the right forms, but my hearts are far from God. Jesus identified among the Pharisees lots of excellent religious activities. Prayer, fasting, tithing, ritual cleansing. That they all did with the wrong heart. So merely going through these does not ex constitute acceptable worship. So now we're ready to see what acceptable worship is. First, you have to have the right object of worship, the true God. And let me just go a little sidebar here in our culture. As you think about uh, the God a lot of people talk about, you often hear in our culture, God is a God of love. Therefore, I can do anything I want in my relationships as long as it's loving. They justify immoral relationships based on God is love. Is God love? Yes, 
God is also holy. And it is in his holiness that we experience his love saving us from immoral relationships. This is a popular version of what the Samaritan woman had. If your God is only a God of love, you don't know the true God until you know that your God is holy. He loves righteousness. He demands of you the same. So you need the right God, and secondly, you need the right heart. And apparently Jesus is saying you don't have that by virtue of your unrepentant lifestyle. So here's the formula. Acceptable worship equals having the right person plus the right heart. Pretty simple. Got that in your bulletin. Hang that up on your refrigerator. Why is this the case, though? Why is this important to say? Because worship is relationship acting itself out. True humanity is found worshiping the right God the right way. That's why in my relationship with God, he doesn't worship me. I worship him. There's nothing in me worthy of worship and 10,000 things in God worthy of worship. In my relationship with God, he sets the terms by which I worship him. Why? I didn't create God. He created me. And by virtue of that, he has the right to set the terms by which he is to be adored, thanked, given to, served. He sets the terms, not me. Can you see how idolatrous, self-serving, what a dead end that is to determine by ourselves how we're going to worship God. So Jesus said, we worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. We talked about this last week. Jesus is the only way. But let me unpack that phrase this week from the perspective of worship. God has always wanted a people on this earth with whom he dwelt, in whom they delighted. I will be your God, you will be my people. And through that people, the world will be blessed. Where's the first place that took place? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were a worshiping community among, among whom God dwelt, in whom they were to delight. They said, we'd rather delight in ourselves. Well, that ended that. And God in his unspeakable grace began another program in Abraham. And he chose Abraham, just a pagan wandering somewhere, and he said, with you, I'm going to make a nation. And from that nation, I will dwell with my people, and I will be their God, and, and, and they will worship me and delight in me, and I'll be the God of your children too. That was the baptism earlier. And that nation, Israel, was to be a blessing to all the other nations. One place God chose to dwell. So as Israel is, is there in Egypt, that's not where they're supposed to be. He has a specific place he wants to put his name. Not in Egypt, in the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, the land of promise. So he delivers them from there. They're wandering in the wilderness. What do they need to do? Make a place for God to dwell. So they build the tabernacle. They finally get in the land. And finally, David's greater son, Solomon, builds a temple. This is the place I'm going to put my name in Jerusalem. And God's people proved faithless to the call to bless the nations and to delight in him. Now think about yourself as a first century Jew going up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And you look at this magnificent building. It's actually a, a rebuild by Herod of the one that was already destroyed that Solomon built. But nonetheless, what are you supposed to think when you see the temple? God's present with his people. 
He loves us. But you couldn't go into the inner sanctuary of the temple. Only the priest could. God is here, but he's too holy for you. And so what you need to be right with God is the shedding of blood. And so there were thousands and hundreds of millions of animals sacrificed on the temple mount, reminding the people the only ultimate cleansing from my filthy conscience is going to be the blood of God himself, the Lamb of God. So when Jesus Christ appears, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1. The lamb is here. The blood has come to cleanse us for the presence of God. And then Jesus says in John 2, I am the temple, right? God is with his people. Emmanuel, God is with us. The temple is here. And so it is only in Jesus Christ, only in Christ, that, that we can have bold access to the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus came to offer God all the perfect worship you owe God. He did. He offered it all. Every act of worship, he, and any act of false worship, which is sin, any act of false worship that condemns you and guilty, Jesus paid the penalty for on the cross. On the cross. Jesus is the way to the Father because in him we see God. He's the true temple, and he is the sacrifice for our sins, making the presence of God safe. And he proves it by sending his spirit to dwell in us. Now the church is the true tabernacle. The church is the temple. So it does matter who you worship and how. And that's my last point. It's not where, but how you worship. So Jesus tells her, but the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Here are the terms by which God says, delight in me, know me, honor me, regard me, adore me. Here are the terms. In spirit. What's that talking about? With your heart. <laughs> because you want to. You're glad to. You're compelled to. You're delighted to. Not just outward form. Not going through the motions. Our adoration of God is in spirit. It's an offering to him with joy and thanksgiving and humility intent on bringing him glory. That's our longing. That's our desire. God is not glorified by sleepy, distracted, half-hearted, passive worship or mere formality. That doesn't glorify God. He wants you engaged in your whole person. You know what this is like in love relationships. Oh, honey, you say you love me, but you don't show. We don't ever talk. I don't get any affection from your heart. You get it in human relationships. How much more in the divine relationship? I, I want to, just from my own testimony, my own personal testimony, when I, when I grew up around the Beltway in McLean, Virginia, I w went to church with my parents. Was I particularly willing to go? No. Was I particularly interested in what was going on there? No. Was I particularly happy when it was over? Yeah. You know why? I get on to my stuff. What is Sunday? It's football day. I want to go adore my Baltimore Colts. Much more than I had any inkling of adoring the God I was in church to know. I, I got converted. 
what happened to my view of worship? Completely changed. I can't wait for Sunday. I hate when worship is over. I love to worship God with God's people. Do I do it perfectly? No. Christ has covered that. But with my spirit, with my heart, my delight, I do believe as a pastor that this is the day that propels you into the week. You get your worship energy corporately here, and you take it into your personal time the next six days, worshiping the Lord privately, personally, and next week bring all that worship collateral that's built in your heart and dump it in this assembly, and let's see what happens. I believe as your pastor, the single greatest thing I have to offer you is my personal worship. Everything flows out of it. Everything flows out of worship. Who wants a pastor to teach you the word of God or shepherd you in my office if I'm not a worshiper? What is that? I don't think it's much of anything. Worship in spirit and finally worship in truth. What does that mean? It means true approach to God only through Jesus Christ. God alone is the one to be worshipped, not Mary, not objects, not saints, not angels, not anything else. Worship in truth, in reality, because the real thing is here. In the Old Testament, worship was typified by shadows and symbols and types. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those. Jesus is the focus of New Testament worship. The reality is here. The temple has come. And incidentally, in 70 AD, God destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, signifying the new temple is in heaven, Jesus And he is building his church. The people of God, Jamie, chose a wonderful passage from 1 Peter 2 earlier. Here now, we're the temple. I don't call this place the sanctuary. You're the sanctuary. I'm the sanctuary. He dwells with his people. And notice how Jesus anchors both concepts, spirit and truth, in the character of God. God is spirit. Verse 24. This recalls King Solomon's dedication of the temple back in 1 Kings 8. Here's what Solomon said. I mean, he knew, he understood. This is the place I'm going to put my name, Jerusalem. This is the one place on earth. From this place, my people go and bless the ends of the earth. Here's what Solomon says. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. He is acknowledging some of the incommunicable attributes of God, that God is infinite. God is immense. He's non-physical. He's spiritual. He's immaterial. <laughs> He's irrepressible life. You can't, he can't contain him in one place. Sure, there were times he came and dwelt, and you could see the Shekinah glory, but that was a special visitation. He holds the galaxies in his hands. A little place can't contain him. And that's why no images can be made of God. They never do justice to his grandeur and his glory. We could say a lot more about that. Let me close with this stunning statement by Jesus that God is seeking worshipers. How unbelievable is that? I mean, that's what Jesus is doing in the story. He is seeking a worshiper. He's making the Samaritan woman, a worshiper, and and we're going to see uh, in some subsequent weeks her whole town becomes a bunch of worshipers. Let me just point out a couple of observations about God is seeking worshipers. Why? Number one, he deserves it. He's seeking what is the right thing on this earth. God is worthy 
of the praise and adoration and humility and obedience of every single creature on earth. He deserves it. That's why he's seeking it. If he's made you a worshiper by giving you the Holy Spirit, he's setting things right in your soul. What's the best reason to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors? God is worthy of their worship. They're, they're commanded to worship this God. They will perish eternally in agony apart from becoming a worshiper. He's worthy of it. Secondly, it is the right posture for relationship with him. I don't call God my buddy. I might have buddies in this life, a buddy, because we're equals. There's nothing equal, as it were, God is God. He's my Father. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. Yes, my older brother. God is my Abba Father, my Daddy, but they are imminently, in, in essence, greater than me. It's the right posture for relation with Him. Thirdly, God is seeking worshipers. Notice how inclusive that makes the church. God isn't seeking smart people or he wouldn't have found me. He's not seeking successful people. He's not seeking just brown people, red people, yellow people, white people. He's seeking worshipers. And so if, if you find yourself in a category that our culture diminishes, throw it off. We all are called to worship God. Great level playing field. Fourth, God is seeking worshipers. Doesn't it show you your absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit? I, I can't offer God the worship he's owed apart from the Holy Spirit. Are you praying him into your heart? Are you asking your mind to be controlled by the truth, the Spirit ministering the truth to you? If, if we had an experiment and we had time and I, I said, let's stand and all just uh, in obedience to the command, I think it's Psalm 33, let's stand in awe of God. How long do you think it would last you focusing just on God? How long do you think it would last? Ten seconds? We can't do this without the Holy Spirit. I hope when you pray Sunday morning, you pray to be filled with the Spirit that you might offer God that kind of worship. Pray for those who are leading. Pray for our musicians. Pray for the worship leader, the preacher. This just isn't going to happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Totally depend. And finally, you, uh, God is seeking worshipers because it's good for you. It's good for you. Notice it's the last reason. The first reason is he deserves it. But it's good for you. It's so good for you that in God's book, what's the longest book of the Bible? The Psalms. Really easy to find because you just open and there they are in the middle. Come on, middle. There they are. Oops, Proverbs. That's because I love Proverbs. <laughs> 100 and 50 songs by which you can worship God. And he continues to give songwriters hymns, songs, and spiritual songs by which we worship him. But start, go ahead and master those 150 for starters. Read those every day, and you'll realize he was seeking you, and he made you one. Let's pray. Our Father, you're seeking worshipers. And we acknowledge together that you have done, first of all, of course you deserve it, but you've done this. 
at great cost to yourself, giving Jesus to make us acceptable to you that we could give you acceptable worship. It doesn't happen apart from the gospel of grace and mercy. Fill my brothers and sisters' hearts, youngest to oldest, with gospel grace and open their eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to worship him now, tomorrow, and every minute of their lives to the praise and glory of his grace. Amen.